Welcome back to the West London Witch. This episode includes a story of suicide and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is strongly advised. The Patrick family was once a well-known and prominent family in my hometown. Dr. Patrick was a local cardiac thoracic surgeon renowned for his incredible success rates. His wife was younger than him, slight, reserved in nature, and had the most beautiful red hair that glistened like liquid amber in the stifling California sun. While Dr. Patrick spent most of his time in the OR, Mrs. Patrick spent her days designing the couple's new home and dreaming of the children who would fill it. The couple had purchased a plot of land in the newly established Stockdale Estates, a corner lot on a quarter of an acre. When Mrs. Patrick presented her designs to the architect, he was shocked. The other homes in the neighborhood were a mix of Spanish Revival, brick colonials, and a few mid-century moderns. But Mrs. Patrick's designs were truly unique. The house was to be made of a dark mahogany in the shape of a triangle. 3,500 square feet of angles, discordant gradients, and steep pitches. A geometric marvel. The Patricks didn't care how impractical, unusual, or expensive the project would be to complete. They simply sent the architect away with strict orders to bring the plans to life. And it wasn't long before the dark red wooden triangle home dominated the neighborhood. The neighbors hated it, complained that it was unsympathetic to the neighboring homes, an eyesore on the street. But secretly, they all wanted a peek inside. The Patricks never had any guests over. They were incredibly private and never engaged with the neighbors. One night, as a neighbor walked her dog down the sleepy street, she caught a glimpse of Mrs. Patrick closing the curtains She was shocked to see that every room was painted a deep red, an eerie ruby glow spilling from the angular panes of glass. After a few years, Mrs. Patrick finally did have a baby. No one ever saw the child, but they all heard him. He would scream tirelessly throughout the day and night. The neighbors thought something was wrong with the child, perhaps a medical condition. But his father was a doctor. Surely he would have known if his own child was ill. The screaming was incessant. Day in and day out, the child wailed and whined. Mrs. Patrick could be seen pacing back and forth in the upstairs peak of the home. Neighbors would stare at her through the window, watching the now wraith of a woman pass back and forth before the triangle window with her suffering babe in her arms. Dr. Patrick was never home. The neighbors suspected that he preferred to be at the hospital rather than what they dubbed the Screaming Triangle House. One summer's night, a change befell the neighborhood. A silence came over the street. It was so deafening it woke the neighbors. They had grown accustomed to the constant screaming, and now the stillness was unnerving. Neighbors began to trickle out of their homes and head towards the screaming triangle house. They were alarmed to see the house completely lit up, 
red light pouring from the windows, bleeding onto the black asphalt of the road. In the top triangle window, they saw Mrs. Patrick suspended by her neck. Police were called immediately to search for the baby, but he was nowhere to be found. Dr. Patrick was pulled from surgery and told the grisly news. He refused to ever return to the home. Mrs. Patrick was laid to rest in a quiet and discreet service. The baby was never found, and the Screaming Triangle house was left to rot. Neighbors tried to petition to have the home torn down, but Dr. Patrick, who had long since faded into oblivion, had paid off the home and kept current with the ongoing property taxes and garden maintenance. So there was no valid reason to tear down the home. But the neighbors were terrified of the house, not just because of the strange tragedy that had once occurred, but rather for the activity that still persisted. The electricity was turned off, but still the house glowed red in the evening hours. Some neighbors claimed to see Mrs. Patrick pacing through the home. Others saw her hanging in the top window. And everyone in the neighborhood had heard the baby crying. Stories of the strange house abounded. Some said that Mrs. Patrick had some sort of mental breakdown and killed and hid her baby. Some say Dr. Patrick had something to do with it. But others believed that the infertile Mrs. Patrick made a deal with the devil in order to conceive. The home was a temple or a monument to Satan himself. However, like all deals with the devil, the child was cursed, not for this world. He drove his mother to madness until his true father could come and collect him, taking him back to the depths of hell from which he came. The Screaming Triangle House stood on its corner plot until the mid-2000s, when it suspected that Dr. Patrick died and the home was sold. It was promptly pulled down, and now a modern adobe-style home sits on the lot. No evidence of it remains. But I saw the house many years ago. The wooden sides had faded to a sun-bleached orange, the grass was dead and yellow, and admittedly, the windows were dark and the street was quiet but I could have sworn that I saw something in that top triangle window. Now, there isn't any evidence or reports to prove this story is true, but the house did exist, and I'm inclined to believe the tales, for one of my friend's aunts knew a nurse who worked with Dr. Patrick and lived next door to the Screaming Triangle House. It's Becca. 
For the past three years, the West London Witch Team have been dedicated to bringing you the best supernatural stories at the highest studio quality. And by team, I mean me and my buddy Danny. We do this work totally for free because we love it. We're proud of our content and appreciate the wonderful interactions we get to have with storytellers and listeners just like yourself. If you're enjoying the West London Witch, maybe consider joining our Patreon. It's a way to further engage with us and show your support for two creatives. If you're in a position to spare enough each month for us to grab a cup of coffee in between edits or add to the piggy bank for a new microphone, we would love to see you in our Patreon community. But I know times are tough, so if you're not in a position to join Patreon right now, that's okay. We aren't going anywhere. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch. For as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, you can gain full access to our coven, a space where we share behind-the-scenes stories, dive deeper into each episode, answer your questions, and have special little treats to thank you for sharing your love and kindness with your favorite little witch. Hello and welcome to the season three finale of The West London Witch a podcast where we share stories about those moments where we find ourselves very much not alone. I want you to imagine that we are all together deep in the woods. It's a warm summer's evening and the moon is high in the sky. We are all seated comfortably around a crackling campfire. This is our version of the Midnight Society. In the great tradition of Are You Afraid of the Dark, we will be sharing a collection of terrifying tales to haunt you until our season four premiere. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. I'm Rebecca Strazina, and this is the West London Witch season three finale. I know it's true. A friend of a friend told me so. Part three. Our first submission to the Midnight Society comes from our friend Hannah of H Haunts Paranormal. You may know Hannah from episode 39, The Proof in the Paranormal. She is here to tell us about the infamous legend of the Blair Witch. This story goes all the way back to 1784 in a small town of Maryland in the USA called Blair. Peaceful, small, with only 20 or so families living happily among each other, the people of the town lived from the land and cultivated quite a quaint life there. They were happy. One person in that town that did not flourish in the prosper of the new America was Ellie Kedwood, whose tale is that of torture, torment, and turmoil. You see, Ellie was not like other women in the town. She didn't have a husband or children, and when her parents died, she became a recluse living alone and relying on her skills to survive. What she longed for, though, was to have children and was very welcoming of the young children around Blair, offering them treats and trinkets to get them inside her house to give her a bit of company. However, a group of teenagers who were especially mischievous one day decided to go to Ellie's home and see what they could get from her. When Ellie had told them that she was not feeling well, they left feeling very upset and angry by her mistreatment of them. How could she not give them something, even small, 
like she does with all the other children in the town. With a spoiled upset, they decided to get revenge by telling everyone that Ellie was a witch. You see, the witch trials of the late 1600s were still in recent memories, and with a high religious retention across the United States, witchcraft was taken very seriously as a crime against not only God, but the community. The teenagers ran to their homes and spread their tales of witchcraft through the town, telling their parents that Ellie had been stealing the blood of children as they were entering her home. She was arrested immediately, and after an incredibly biased and unfair trial, was found guilty of witchcraft and was banished from the town. But Ellie had nowhere to go. It was winter on the East Coast, and the woods were an unforgiving place. After a few days, with no sight of Ellie, the teens decided to try and go find her. Was it out of guilt and compassion, or was it out of morbid curiosity to see if they could find her dead, frozen remains? The legend goes that they did find Ellie, however, she had not died. They found her very much alive, deep in the woods, tied to an old tree. You see, what the parents hadn't told the children is that her banishing from the town was meant to be permanent in that they intentionally left her in the cold winter exposed to the elements to die, banishing her from the earthly realm for good. However, these teenagers didn't recoil in fear at seeing Ellie up in the tree. Instead, they decided to make her end much more gruesome. They began to throw sticks at her, then stones, then rocks, until she began to bleed. Blood began to drip from her arms, her torso, her legs, pooling on the ground below. The group cut her down from the tree and dipped their hands into her blood, leaving their own personalised mark on her body with their handprints before hanging her back up from the limbs of the tree to die. They returned to the town of Blair and snuck into their homes, swearing not to utter a word about their cruel and sinister activities and no one would ever need to find out. However, it wasn't long before the rumours of a curse began to emerge people in the town of Blair began to go missing. A man from one of the accusing families on the first day, two children the next day, a mother from a neighbouring home the day after. By midwinter, every single person that had accused Ellie Kedwood of witchcraft had gone missing, along with over half of the town's children, without a trace. The remaining people of Blair fled for their lives, fearing that Ellie Kedwood in fact was a witch and had cursed the town of Blair, and thus the legend of the Blair Witch was born. A few decades later, the town was refounded as Burkittsville, where despite the previous generation's rumour of witchcraft, the town began to flourish once again. A historical society opened, preserving the history of times past, present and emerging. One item of interest still within the historical society today is a book written from the settlement of Burkittsville. However, its contents are not for the faint-hearted and it's incredibly taboo. It's not only containing pagan symbology, rituals and spells, but it also contains the legend of the Blair Witch from the early 1800s, inscribed in human blood. The Blair Witch itself has been reported for centuries. People believe it's a demon straight from hell. Others believe it's an elemental spirit, never human and never possessing a soul but scouring the earth for victims to continue harvesting its energy source. The most common theory, though, is that of a seemingly innocent, lonely lady that was wrongfully accused and murdered 
and in death has returned as a spirit with unresolved business. The brutality of her untimely passing and a longing for her own revenge, she is now forever bound to finding and taking the lives of all those that enter the old Blair Woods. Witness testimonies describe the witch's presence as controlling, commanding, and all-encompassing. She controls the animals in the forest, and she even seems to have the trees under her influence. When she walks, her feet never touch the ground. She is silent, but she is everywhere. It's believed that she leaves little offerings of stick figures in hopes people will pick it up and be led towards her. So I beg you, fellow paranormal investigators and haunters of the world, before you head to a location that's reportedly haunted or is rumoured to have a malevolent spirit, please, please research that person, that place, that location. Research what you are walking into and who you might meet along the way, both in flesh and in the merry departed. If you believe the rumours to remain safe from the likes of the Blair Witch, all you have to do is not buy into it. Do not pick up her trinkets, ignore the voices in the wind, ignore the shadows, and bring her an offering in return. And if you don't, well, maybe you'll do. Our next story comes to us from the Wild West. My dad has joined us this evening to tell us the grisly tale of a highwayman whose legacy is more Silence of the Lambs than Sundance Kid. So I've got a story for you guys that is a combination of bizarre and creepy. I'm sure everyone has heard the saying, walk a mile in my shoes. Well, in the wild, wild west of the late 1800s, that saying had chilling connotations where the shoes in question were made of human skin. It may sound like an old-time myth or a story that cowboys told around the campfire and sounds too gruesome to be real, but I can assure you it's a true story and the shoes do still exist and are on display in a museum in the small town of Rawlings, Wyoming. The shoes are just part of the bizarre story between an outlaw highwayman named Big Nose George Parrott and a future Wyoming governor and physician named John Osborne. George's nickname came from either his big-like nose or was an adaption of his French name at Perot. But wherever the nickname came from, Big Nose had developed a reputation for stealing from travellers on stagecoaches and then progressed to train robberies. He had also previously been arrested for horse theft, but was tried and acquitted of that crime. In August 1878, Big Nose George and his gang, which included another typical Wild West character by the name of Dutch Charlie Burris, planned the theft of the Union Pacific Railroad paid car, just east of Medicine Bow, near Laramie, Wyoming. At the time, Union Pacific carried their cash via the pay car monthly for its own company payroll. The bandits hatched a plan to loosen a spike in the rails, wrap up a telegraph wire and then hide in the sagebrush, planning to dislodge the rails as the train approached to derail the train so they could abscond with the money. But their plans were disrupted by a sharp-eyed railroad employee who spotted the trap and repaired the damage, alerting lawmen before the train arrived. But before the lawmen could get there, Big Nose George and his gang and made their getaway. They were tracked down a few days later by a local sheriff and a railway detective. The two lawmen, however, were captured and murdered by the gang, who then went on to steal several thousand dollars from bank robberies before attempting to rob another train in North Dakota, but were thwarted by the soldiers who were meeting the train to escort the payroll to nearby Fort Keogh in Bismarck. The outlaws, again, eluded capture for a while, but it appears Dutch Charlie was caught early in 1879. 
While it was being transported from Laramie to Rawlins for trial, the locomotive stopped for coal and water. A mob of angry locals seeking revenge for the murder of the two popular lawmen boarded the train, dragged Dutch from the train and hung him from a railway pole. Big Nose was eventually captured in Montana after bragging in the bar of his previous exploits. While two other members of the gang escaped, Carbon County Sheriff James Rankin went to Montana in July 1880 and brought Big Nose George back to Wyoming for trial. After flip-flopping between guilty and not guilty pleas, George was finally found guilty and sentenced to hang on April 2nd, 1881. But just 10 days before his planned execution, he attempted to escape from jail. He broke free from his shackles, which he used to hit jailer Robert Rankin in the head with. However, he was thwarted by Rankin's wife, Rosa, who discovered the attempted jailbreak and quickly managed to close the outside door. She then took her husband's gun and fired it in the air, which alerted the townsfolk who came running to help. The mob who came to the jail were taking no chances this time. They tied Big Nose George's hands behind his back, threw a noose around his neck, and after initially failing when the rope broke, the mob eventually lynched the highwayman while a crowd of over 200 people watched on cheering. Unsurprisingly, no one came to claim the body, so Rawlins physician John Osborne and Thomas McGee, a Union Railroad Pacific physician and surgeon, claimed the corpse for medical study. McGee studied the criminal's brain. His wife had become criminally insane after several head injuries from horse riding incidents, so the doctor hoped his research could aid his wife. Big Nose George's skull was cut into two pieces. McGee gave the top half to his prodigy, Lillian Heath, who later became Wyoming's first female physician. Heath's husband used the skull for many years as an ashtray. Meanwhile, Osborne also had other reasons to research the remains. Apparently, he had been on one of the trains that Big Nose George's gang had held up, which had caused them to miss an important party. In revenge, he made a death mask from the outlaw's face. He then sliced the outlaw's skin from his chest and his thighs and then had them made into a doctor's bag, a coin purse, and a pair of shoes. Or rather, half a pair of shoes. The rest of the leather, the rear darker portion, was from the shoes that were cut from George's feet that he was wearing while he was lynched. The revengeful doctor certainly knew how to make an impression, and no one was going to mess with the man wearing his shoes made from another man's skin. Osborne went on to become a bank chairman, the largest sheep owner in Wyoming, and the first Democratic governor of the state of Wyoming. In true Osborne style, he wore those shoes to his 1893 inauguration. He then went on to display the shoes in a glass case in the front of the Rawlings National Bank. So next time someone asks you to walk a mile in their shoes, you may want to ask them first, what are the shoes made of? How about one more story for the road, friends? Gregory Daniels was in trouble, and he knew it. It was not only well after curfew, but he was out with his girlfriend, Pamela. His parents were going to be upset, and Pamela's parents were going to be worried sick and fuming. And this curfew was no ordinary check-in time either. There had been a recent spree of kidnappings in the next town over. All young co-eds out driving in the woods at night. The curfew had been put in place by the police to keep the kids safe. The parents loved the idea. The high schoolers were not so thrilled. Sure, there had been kidnappings, but they were over 20 miles away. Besides, in this one-road town, nothing exciting ever happened. 
It was a sticky summer's night. The cicadas were humming and purring through the tall trees. The moon was a sliver in the sky, and it was dark. A perfect night for the pair to park up and get lost in time together. But now Gregory was speeding home, going well over 75 miles down the winding mountain road. Pamela had asked him to slow down, but she too was worried about the trouble that awaited her at home. The car twisted and turned its way down the spindly street. Every corner was a blind corner, and naturally Gregory had to slow down. You never knew when you were going to meet head-on traffic. The curfew had now long passed. There was no real reason to speed. If they died on the road, what was the point? As the descent steepened, the timberline thickened. The buzz of the cicadas grew louder, the light from the moon duller, and the heat of the night more ferocious. As Gregory turned down a particularly tight corner, the pair were horrified to see a body laying in the middle of the road. It was a woman. She looked young, clad all in white, and covered in blood. Pamela tried to scream, but nothing came out. Gregory stopped the car just in time, but the conundrum now was, what do you do next? Neither teen wanted to get out of the car, but what if this girl was still alive? They had to help her. It also was a single track road. They couldn't go around her to fetch help, and if they went back up from where they came, they would only reach the top of the mountain. They had to get out and help her. Gregory told Pamela to stay in the car. She crawled into the back to clear the seat so there would be room to lay the woman down. As Gregory stepped out of the car, he was immediately hit with an unnatural silence. No cicadas, no wind in the trees, and no cries or moans from the woman. Cautiously, he approached her, his shoes sticking to the hot tarmac. He could see she was bleeding from seemingly everywhere. Thick, syrupy blood had matted her hair, and pools of the claret liquid had begun to dry in the summer's heat. He approached slowly, saddened by the scene, but also confused. Where was all this blood coming from? Who was she? How had she ended up here? Who would leave her like this? Could an animal have attacked her? As he bent down to roll her over, he placed his hands on her shoulders and realized she was warm. She must still be alive, he thought in amazement. Now with more urgency, he turned her onto her back. As he wiped the blood-soaked curls from her face, her eyes popped open, and in a menacing tone, she shouted, Gotcha! Oh, how Gregory screamed. He jumped away from the bloody mess of a woman who was now standing tall and racing for the teen. From behind her, headlights flashed on, and four large men came barreling out of a van. They grabbed Gregory, whose screams filled the mountainside. In a swift, fluid, choreographed sequence, Gregory was thrown into the van and the car darted down the mountain. From the backseat of Gregory's car sat Pamela, who watched the entire production from the safety of the car. Her mouth was gaping as she cried silent sobs. Tears streamed down her face and fell in large pools on her top. She was violently shaking and felt nauseous. In that moment, she knew she would never see Gregory again.
at least not alive. That concludes this evening's submissions to the Midnight Society and Season 3 of The West London Witch. Thank you so much for all of your love and support this season. It truly is a joy to share these stories with you. Thank you to all of our storytellers who have graciously shared their time and tales with us and have entrusted us to present their stories with respect and sensitivity. A thousand thank yous to our patrons who have generously come out to support us on our Patreon. Your support truly does mean the world to me. If you'd like to join in on the Patreon fun and support two creatives trying to produce the best content we can, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the West London Witch and unlock loads of additional content and behind the scenes material. And as always, if you have a spooky story that you'd like to share, drop me an email at thewestlondonwitch at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at The West London Witch. From all of us here at The West London Witch, we hope you have a wonderful summer and look forward to bringing you season four in the fall. Until then, merry meet, merry part, and merry meet again. The West London Witch is created by me, Rebecca Strazina. Our sound designer and production magician is the incredible Danny Cross. Our theme music was bespokely written and performed by the wickedly talented Kyle Hall. Our cover art is the beautiful collaboration between Lizzie Wilson and Jake Bowser. Special thanks to Missionaid Bowers, our quality control and biggest cheerleader. And thank you to you, all of our listeners all over the world. These are your stories. Thank you for sharing them with us.